just hurt his pants. Like, <laughs> it was my arm. <laughs> Are you sure you weren't sitting on your hands, James? I, I mm-hmm. do. I lay with the uh, one with my arm under me. So that was the problem. Are you laying down recording right now? Like, yeah, I always lay down when we record. I always lay oh down when we record. <laughs> do you really? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. No wonder you sound so casual. No, that explains. That explains why I hear so much rustling <laughs> when I'm editing the podcast together. Oh, I'll hear James talking, then all of a sudden it's just like. I feel like my life has been really altered by this news. I don't oh, wow. know why, but this has really put some things into perspective for me. I never thought about laying down to record. Like that's like the ultimate podcast thing. Like you know you're good at it when you can lay down and record. Well, that's Maybe James. even fall asleep during it now. When we know how comfortable he is. Maybe that's why he doesn't respond to us sometimes when we when oh, talk. Yeah. That could be it. That's the deal. I'm, I'm nodding off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, All right. Well, listeners, welcome to the Thirteenth Floor Podcast. I am Cece. <laughs> I'm Alex. I'm James. No, oh, he's already started. Lounge lizard oh. James. <laughs> <laughs> you really got him, James. Um oh. how have you guys been? Doing okay. Been been just laying oh. around. <laughs> 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 oh man. Yeah, I'm pretty good. Pretty good. All's right with the world. Well, lucky you. Oh, okay. You guys I hurt my toe. Oh um. yeah. I've been I've been limping around the house for a week now. You should feel worse for me because yeah, I'm the one who has to take care of it. He does. <laughs> he does. He has to deal with me, but still. And Louise got attacked. Yeah, and our dog got attacked by another yeah. dog. So it's been a it's been a rough week in the yeah. Cornette household. She has a hole in her chest right now. Aww. You would never know though, James, because she's been running around the house like crazy. Yeah. It's gonna get cleaned mm. here after we get off here. Let's not talk about it. It's gross. <laughs> and we don't know. We don't know what our listeners doing right now. Whether well, if they were eating, they've stopped. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry about that, you guys. <laughs> what is our icebreaker today? Actually, you know what? Before we get to our icebreaker, how about we just give all of our announcements at the very beginning? Oh, okay, sounds oh. good. You know how it goes. Sure. Uh, merch is yeah. still going to come, and also I want to give my shout outs to all of our everywhere people are listening. Okay, so. This episode, we're going to give a shout out to Brazil, because we've got Mm. suddenly an influx in listeners in Brazil, so thank you there. And then Mm. also Norway. I want to go to Norway. And then U.S., we're going to say hello to everyone in Tennessee, because Tennessee, you guys, you guys are listening like crazy right now. So thank you to all of our listeners in all areas of the world, not just those three, everywhere. Because you know what? Mm. Recording this podcast wouldn't be nearly as much fun without you. That's right. You know, Brazil makes me think, uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, I really wanted to go to Brazil because I believed that Blanco was real uh, from Street Fighter, and I always wanted to meet him, <laughs> and he's from Brazil. <laughs> Man, can you imagine meeting a Blanca? Is uh, that your tall boy, James? Uh, the, I'm, I'm not that imaginative. I don't, <laughs> don't want an eight-foot-tall green tulpa. <laughs> I thought you were going to make a... a- transparent alligator yeah see that's easier yeah (laughs) all right you guys what is our icebreaker today how about this um you know since we're covering war and since it's a historical themed episode 
what military person, that is to say, what person is famous for their military campaigns, either as a leader or general, what have you, hero, would you most like to meet? Oh, interesting. Uh, mm. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, this person doesn't exist yet, James. Oh, God. (laughs) Okay. The first silver medal winning agent of Space Force. Ah, there we go. That's neat. <laughs> after he, man, after the, the the second Martian invasion, of course. Man, I was reading their ads. Their ads are real bad, you guys. Yeah, they are bad, they, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Space Force. I'm a copywriter. Uh, call me. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I had to pick someone real, yeah. Well, this person will be real after the second Martian invasion, but <laughs> the other person, goodness, would be, I guess, someone like. Uh, USSS Grant. Oh, Grant was an interesting guy when it came to warfare. You know, this was a guy who could be cool cool as a cucumber with cannons firing around him, but he would have like panic attacks under normal circumstances, like weddings and stuff. (laughs) He sounds like me. Well, and I mean, he had to go through killing his own countrymen as well. Not a big fan of his tactics, to be honest. I, I do think that Grant the Butcher was well earned, but oh well. Yes, so I would want to talk to him about that. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I don't really know much about war or... No worries. Yeah, I think that I would probably choose Winston Churchill. He seems interesting. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Ooh, what about you, James? Um. Wow. That, that's actually, you know, I'm the one who asked it, and I, I was the least prepared, apparently. He, he would want to talk to... Um, Septimus Severus, his favorite emperor, remember? Actually, that was a legit consideration. Mm -hmm. No joke. I know you, James. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. If I I, honestly, though, I think that I'd have to pick um, either Hannibal or. (laughs) You nailed it, Cece, actually. (laughs) I know. Alexander the Great. Well, Alexander the Great ran into a bunch of mythical creatures, too. So there you go. Ooh. You know what? That's true. I might want to meet him instead. Mm. Although he also seems kind of scary. He was truly great. He was truly great. He was the first European to eat bananas. <laughs> well, that's your fun that's fact for the day, you guys. <laughs> yeah. All right. And that was our show for the day because it doesn't get any more interesting <laughs> than that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, are you guys ready to jump into war conspiracies? And also, this topic was submitted to us by Skip. So, Skip, thank you for sending this our Skip, way. shout out to you. Shout mm. out to you. We're yep. sending you... I made a little heart with my hands. Boop. Mm. All right. Okay. James, you're starting us off today, right? Yep. Uh, And just for the record, everybody, all these war conspiracies are United States war conspiracies, Um, which at some point in the future, maybe we'll do a more global edition. But mine starts with the very first United States related conspiracy. Now, there's plenty involved in the Revolutionary War, but, you know, when those took place, we weren't really in the United States. This is the Civil War, and the argument is Fort Sumter. So this is something that a lot of sources have attempted to sort of play down, and largely because it makes Lincoln look bad, and you're not allowed to make Lincoln look bad because... He's Lincoln. He's basically like, yeah, yeah, he's Jesus and Santa Claus rolled into one. Oh my goodness. Um, (laughs) But... (laughs) But... uh, Basically, Fort Sumter is the battle that really started the Civil War. Like it was the the the, the event that really was catalyzed. It. it took place in April 1861, and 
A lot of sources argue that this is just revisionism by members of the Confederacy uh, in order to make the North look bad after the fact. Um, and it is interesting that there's very few indications about what happened prior to after the war had already ended. Jefferson Davis in particular and uh, Alexander H. Stevens. Jefferson Davis, for those who don't know, was the uh, uh, the, the literal head of the Confederacy. Um, and interestingly, I'm, I'm just throwing this out there. You know, he was born in Kentucky and Lincoln was born in Kentucky and they were only born from each other. Like, uh, I think it was less than 50 miles. Hmm. Wow. So it's kind of interesting that they were both from Kentucky and nobody ever talks about that. Yeah. And no one ever also mentioned the ley lines that they were both born on. <laughs> <laughs> I went to um, Abraham Lincoln's Abraham Lincoln's cabin when I was little. And I remember I got there. I was so excited. I was like, this is amazing. This is where Abraham Lincoln grew up. And then they're like, this is just a recreation. And we don't really know if this is where it was located. And I was heartbroken. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's way worse than the, uh, the mystery spots. At least they let you know. <laughs> oh man. Oh. Um, but, uh, Basically, what happened prior to Fort Sumter is after the Confederacy had come into being, after the secession of the Confederate states, you have to understand that it wasn't like today where where now the Confederacy is is largely viewed uh, through a negative lens. This was a new country in the United States, which wasn't really all that powerful. Again, the United States as a military power didn't really happen until after World War II basically because the infrastructure of Europe had been completely obliterated. So we were not seen as this uh, this global force at the time. And Lincoln's biggest concern was that the Confederacy would end up with much, much, much more powerful allies. He was concerned that England or France or some other powerful nation, Prussia, might actually become allied with the Confederacy. And if that happened the war would have a vastly different, or more accurately, the conflict, because at the time it was more like a Cold War, would have a vastly different outcome. So what ended up happening at Fort Sumter was Lincoln maneuvered uh, for a, uh, what do you call it, like a, a supply refill. But what ended up happening turned out to be a, a full-scale battle. Now, one thing that we do know is that the South fired the first shot. So that, that much we have as a fact. Okay. But a lot of people argue that by pressing Confederate forces sort of against the wall, so to speak, that it encouraged a hostile act and as such escalated what had previously been a nonviolent uh, conflict into a full-scale war. Mm. That's, yeah. Now, I am somewhat skeptical of this. For three reasons. These are these are my three arguments why I think it's probably not legit. One, even if they had been the aggressors or painted as the aggressors, the Confederacy still could have allied with a foreign force. It's not like news traveled quickly back then. It's not like there was a flipping, you know, online journalist movement to, yeah, to get news to France immediately. And even if they had, it Usually people ally with whoever they think is going to win in a conflict, not not who they agree with ideologically. I know that sounds trite mm. and nihilistic, but it's true. Wars are not fought for ideals. They're fought for resources. Interesting. Um, yeah. So this idea that you know they, they would have thought, oh, my God, 
the Confederacy fired first. Well, uh, it's it's not like flipping Han and Greedo. You know, it's it's not a fanboy argument. It's a question of resources. So the fact that France and England didn't get involved is probably has nothing to do with the outcome of Fort Sumter. So that's that's strike one. Hmm. Strike two, I don't think any tactician is brilliant enough to create an act of hostility from other forces. That's I, I just don't believe that for a second. Um, generally speaking, if an act of aggression takes place, it, it takes place because somebody wants to initiate a conflict, not because they're pressed against the wall. Anybody in, uh, under those circumstances would probably agree. Lastly, and this I think is, is the, the biggest argument against it, is how brilliant could Lincoln have been to have foreseen that that would have been the outcome. I mean, because bear in mind, the war was a very close war. It was not something where uh, the Union just wiped the floor with uh, with the Confederacy. It was the bloodiest conflict imaginable for the, the period. There were battlefields that were literally ankle deep in blood. So the idea that he could have made such a strategic decision, I think is... Again, it only makes sense in retrospect, which is where all the literature comes from. All the literature comes from after the fact. Hmm. And real quick, let's touch on the uh, the actual act itself, on, on Fort Sumter itself. I probably should have started with that, but <clears throat> I just I got real opinionated real quick. <laughs> but, you just got excited, James. Yeah. Basically, what happened was at four in the morning uh, in April, Captain George James who, you know, wins a contest for having one of the, or sorry, uh, Henry Farley. Uh, he was acting under George James. He fired a 10-inch mortar from Fort Johnson. And what's interesting about that is uh, he had actually offered it to uh, Roger Pryor first, and he was a secessionist. And he actually said, that the, Roger Pryor said, I could not fire the first gun of the war. That's actually what he said. So it's like he... This fellow, this fellow on the front lines did understand the gravity of what was about to happen. Hmm. Yeah. Oof. So then Edward uh, Edmund Ruffin, who's another secessionist from uh, Virginia, he went to, to uh, Charleston just to be there at the beginning of the war. And he fired one of the first shots after the signal round, which is the one that I just had brought up. So after that, it just became all out firefight like uh, back and forth back and forth to the point that then it actually escalated to a, an all-out naval battle where um what one of the things that i do think is suspicious is one of the warships that was actually supposed to send uh, relief didn't arrive the uss powhatan and the reason why was it actually was ordered to go to port fickens port fort dang that's a really hard one to say fort <laughs> Pickens in Florida. Fort Pickens. So, yeah, it's kind of like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is where the firefight's at. Why was it sent elsewhere? Huh. So, there, yeah, there's definitely suspicious goings on. Um, and I absolutely think that this, if it, if it was deliberate, if it was to instigate the war itself, uh, I really do think that it sort of set a precedent in U.S. wars being fought um, under false pretenses, because as we'll see, this has happened for pretty much every war we've been involved in <laughs> since see. the 19th century. Yeah. yeah, 
And with that, take it away, Alex. Alex, it's your turn. Yeah. So I got Pearl Harbor. Pearl. Yeah. So I really wanted to cover this conspiracy that I've kind of heard a little bit off and on. And that's the alternate theory, I guess, that led to the events of that day. I believe they call it the back door to war theory. Hmm. Yeah. So the theory is that Franklin D. Roosevelt had prior knowledge and had been warned about the attack on Pearl Harbor and that he had let it happen. And this is a group of historians. This isn't a group of, I guess, well, I guess they are kind of conspiracy theorists in a way. But this is a group of historians that are not generally well received by the wider breadth of historians. They kind of push these guys to the side because they don't really agree with them. But they make some interesting points. So, first off, why would Roosevelt let this happen if he had knowledge beforehand? Well, war in Europe was raging and the Nazis were doing quite well. Uh, The problem was is that the American public and the government were hesitant to join the fight in Europe. And Roosevelt even ran on a platform that he would not send anyone to war. Hashtag Monroe Doctrine. <laughs> uh, the, the problem is, is he actually cleverly used the words, well, we will not join a foreign war. But the thing is, when the war is brought home and you go overseas, it it's not a foreign different. war. Yeah. Ooh. Exactly. So he never actually broke his promise. <clears throat> now... They were kind of moving towards a more favorable mindset in terms of preventing Nazi rule in Europe, but they weren't quite there. The problem was also that their relationship with Japan was deteriorating so fast that it was going to be pretty difficult to fight a battle on two fronts without the unanimous support of the country. You know, you don't want to be doing battle with your own government trying to fight two wars on two sides of the globe. So the the idea is that the opportunity arose when he found out the uh, Japan was going, going to attack Pearl Harbor and then he neglected it because he saw this opportunity as a way to manipulate the country and unify them into, and trick them into willingly going to war with Europe and Japan. Kind of. If everyone's behind, if America can get completely behind war, then they can actually win. It's an interesting theory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's even very documented conversation between him, Churchill, and Stalin, where he actually says, in quotes, it would have been difficult to gain public support for war without the Japanese attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... There may have actually been a backdoor to war for him. Now, there are a few things. They don't really disprove this theory, but they do kind of bring some things into question. And that first thing is that Roosevelt was a Navy man. And so it's kind of unlikely that he would sacrifice his old military branch. Yeah. Uh, Especially so horrifically. But not only that... If he did know about it, why would he have let the Japanese destroy so much of it? That's a lot. I, I would say probably one or two aircraft carriers or even less than that could have probably been enough. Yeah. You know, you don't have to sacrifice all these ships. You could probably could have done one or two if that was really his aim. Of course, if he's pleading mm-hmm. ignorance, then hmm, who knows? 
Secondly, Roosevelt did know that an attack was coming, and it was co- and that is confirmed. Now it's not quite what you think. He knew attack an attack was coming, December sixth or seventh, and they also knew that the attack was actually aimed at. They thought they knew that the attack was aimed at the British, the Dutch, or French ships that were out in the Southeast Asia Sea. Hmm. And apparently all that information that they thought that they had collected actually obscured the information of Pearl Harbor, which Pearl Harbor actually ended up being, they thought Japan was not technologically capable of getting to Pearl Harbor. Oof. And You know, that uh, I'm not trying to interrupt, but it, it makes such a really good point about war conspiracies, which... This is not me attacking any theories. No, I mean, there's plenty of evidence for for all of the conspiracies we're covering, even the one about Lincoln. But, you know, you talk about the fog of war. There's all this misinformation being fired from all sides. You've got spies. You've got counter spies. You've got false documents. You've got real documents. The idea that anybody knows what to do in a war, that they had, you know, previous uh, intelligence about something is not really possible. Like, nobody knows anything. <laughs> right. True. Right, which is very similar to our current situation that's been <laughs> going on all year. We're all going to look back yeah. and be like, this was the right thing to do. This was the wrong thing to do. How stupid these people yeah. were. But This person knew. <laughs> that's right. This person knew. That's right. But in, in reality, no one knows. Everyone's trying to do their best. But someone's going to look like a genius and someone's going to look like a fool at the end of the day. <laughs> Oh, great. (laughs) Now, the other problem with this theory is that while public interest in the war was very mixed, Roosevelt actually had acquired enough potential votes to make the war happen. But it wasn't the, if the theory is correct, it's not the unifying push that he wanted. And it was certainly have kind of torn the country apart. Not, Not like civil war apart, but... It would have broken a lot of promises and looked like he was maybe war hungry. Yeah. So they they think that he needed a unifying push. And it doesn't look like he actually had to have it to get it started. So Yeah, that Mm. kind of Mm. scrubs it all. Yeah. Now, I do want to, this is unrelated. I mean, it's not unrelated. It's still about Pearl Harbor. But before I let James go. Uh, already, he already went. Uh, before I let CC go. Wow. <laughs> I just wanted to hear James twice. By the way, I remember the word. I remember the word resupply. 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 Yeah. Uh, resupply. <laughs> oh. yeah. He didn't have to resupply the fort, which was taken by Confederate forces, but he did anyway, and it definitely led to a conflict. Mm. But again, I think if he hadn't resupplied, uh, it would have been almost like a, an admission of defeat. You know, with regard to that fort, but whatever. Hmm. You know, it's it's rare for me to say anything. Well, oh, I, I can't say that. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I want to give you uh, another weird thing that happened regarding Pearl Harbor. So this, and this is from uh, this is from a book called Pearl Harbor: From Infamy to Greatness by Craig Nelson. And this book was released on the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. And there's this anecdote in it that's really brief. It says that on November, on November 22nd, an ad appeared in the New Yorker magazine that it, essentially the gist of the ad was that there's a family, they're in a bunker, and there's an air raid going over top of them. 
and mm. they're all in the bunker playing this game called Deadly Double. The game is used mm. playing two dice. Now, these dice have numbers etched on them. Instead of one through six, they have random numbers. Not, mm. I mean, they're not random if it's a game, but like they've, they've got mm. like up to 12 is, I think, the highest number, or 23 or something like that. Now, they're six-sided die, first off. So it's weird that they would have these numbers. But the other thing is that they only had two numbers shown on the ad. 12 and 7. December 7th is the day of Pearl Harbor. Now, the weird thing is is that an intelligence officer, he was in a plane with someone and he was telling him about this thing that he's investigating. Went on to tell him that while he investigated that, he went to the New Yorker and the ad had been dropped off by hand, which not unusual. But the weird thing is, is that they, <clears throat> they paid for the entire ad with cash. So it was pretty untraceable, mm. a little weird. And then he wasn't able to find this game that's been advertised. And I believe it's seven different spots in this one New Yorker. Hmm. He can't find the game. And then he tries to contact the company that, allegedly makes the game they don't exist and so he was never able to find more information on this ad why would they put that ad in like what would it maybe it was like a um well a lot of spies i was about to say spies use newspapers a lot for stuff that was the thought is that it was a secret message being sent (sighs) but they weren't ever able to find anything else out about it wow yeah, and you can actually go uh, look up the images. They're available. Of the ad? Mm-hmm. Ooh. Boy, yep. and, and, and it just remember, Deadly Double, if you're going to go look it up. Deadly Double newspaper ad. Yeah. Oh, man. You know, they say that the, the Chinese had warned us um, about Pearl Harbor, too, and that, you know, one of the arguments that why we dismissed it is because we just thought, oh, those zany Chinese don't know what they're talking about, which I think is absolute bunk. I mean, come on, it's war. You're going to listen to anybody at that point. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's plausible. I don't think yeah. it's likely. Like, I would give it like a yeah 2% chance of it happening, mm. of him letting it uh, happen. But yeah. uh, if, we're, if we're playing numbers, I think there's a 30% chance Lincoln was deliberate in his actions. I think there's a 80% chance the USS Maine was sunk in order to get us involved in the Spanish-American War. And I, there's a 40% chance that Pearl Harbor was deliberate. Mm. Man. And I'm making these numbers up as I go along, so it doesn't really mean anything. Are you going <laughs> to... <laughs> All right. Are you guys ready to talk about my topic? Yeah. All right. Yep. James, are you going to consult the iChain to let us know which of these things are fake or real? That's a good idea. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's where that Chinese intelligence comes from. <laughs> All right. You guys. Y'all know what I'm talking about today? Of course you do. <laughs> because we all talked about this before. <laughs> but lovely listener, you probably don't. I am going to be talking about the deception that may have spurred the Vietnam War. Oof. Good gravy. Mm. Before I get started, I'm just going to say this. You know, I say this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you do say this all the time. I say this all the time. Um, this was a hard one for me to research. <laughs> this one was a challenge because, you guys, the public school system totally failed me when it came to just history in general. 
So as I was as I was like studying and learning about the Vietnam War, because I don't think that I ever learned about this at school. You were probably writing notes to your friends and passing them along. No, I wasn't. I didn't have any friends in school. (laughs) (laughs) So sad. I think that most of my knowledge on the Vietnam War, no joke, came from Forrest Gump. Oh, is that sad? It's it's concerning. Yeah. (laughs) So. And then ping pong. Yeah, and then ping pong and lots of ice cream. I, when I was in college, all I had to take was U.S. history pre-Revolutionary War. So that's about as far as I go. (laughs) So, all right, you guys. I got most of my research from a great little article on allthatsinteresting.com. It made this all very easy to understand. And then also Mm -hmm. history.com, obvi. So we're going to travel back to the place where this alleged U.S. deception may have taken place. Mm. We're going to go to the Gulf of Tonkin, okay? Oh, yeah. Yes, a little body water, a gulf, if you will, that is to the <laughs> west of Vietnam. <laughs> is it also the Gulf of Tonkin? The Gulf of Tonkin. <laughs> and it's where the U.S., there were boats and things that were monitoring the activities of North Vietnam. And at the time... 1964, Vietnam was actually split into two states. So I'm going to give you guys a little history lesson right here, okay? All right, teach me. Yeah, for anybody who's Mm. like me and did not learn this in school. Um, Okay, so (laughs) Vietnam split into two separate states, North and South Vietnam. They also had other names. There were so many names for all of these different things. But I'm going to call them North and South Vietnam throughout my my little spiel. So prior to the split, Vietnam had been colonized by France. And then Japan took over the area, and then France kind of caught it back. And then finally, in 1964, a guy by the name of Ho Chi Minh. Mm, may have heard of him. Yeah, he was like, listen, we are our own country. Be gone to the French. And then France was like, wait, 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 no. This is our territory. And so starts the first <laughs> Indochina War, Okay. You guys follow? Yeah. Okay, good. Yep. So this war wages on for some time, and in 19... Well, wait a minute. I've gotten my dates mixed up. Uh, well, you know, this is your first no go at history. This is my first it's go at okay. history. It's okay. Well, the <laughs> war wages on, and then in 1954, so Ho Chi Minh was around way before 1964. Just, okay. <laughs> so Now I'm laughing. <laughs> So, in 1954, Vietnam eventually separates into North Vietnam, run by Ho Chi Minh, and it's a communist state. He kind of wants communism to be the the government. Mm-hmm. And then- I got a lot to say about that when you're done, oh by the way. Oh, James, James is going- You're making me nervous, James. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. No worries. Just a supplement. Okay. Just a supplement. So he's going to supplement. Okay. So, then South Vietnam is run by a guy named No Dinh Diem. Is that how you say his name, James? So you can't DM yep. them, huh? No, 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 Din DM. <laughs> I can't believe they got me. Oh man, I'm laughing now. But he was supported by the U.S. and some actually consider him as having been a tool of the U.S. to try to prevent the spread of communism because that was what Ho Chi Minh mm. wanted. Was he his goal was just to unite the country as a socialist republic of Vietnam, and the U.S. was like, you know mm. what? No, let's send our troops so the South can keep communism at bay. So the Mm. Soviet Union was a big supporter of North Vietnam and the Cold War was becoming a bigger deal. So it only made sense that the U.S. was wary of letting North Vietnam take back South Vietnam. 
because, uh, you know, there's this little thing called the domino theory. James, you know what the domino theory is? Of I course do. you do. Alex, do you know what the domino theory is? Yeah. All right. Tell us what it is. All right. So the domino theory. <laughs> All right. Oh, you don't want me to? No. Okay, so anyways, the domino theory is the idea that if one country falls to communism, yep. more will follow. It's like That's a domino. That's exactly what I was about to say. You stole my thunder. Yeah, well, I didn't know what you were mm. going to say. I couldn't trust you. So, <laughs> so the domino theory was in play. Everybody thought, oh my goodness, if North Vietnam takes back South Vietnam and it becomes a full country of communism, the world's going to fall apart. And so... South Vietnam was all like, no, we're not going to have communism. So the U.S. sent troops to help South Vietnamese soldiers. They sent military supplies, et cetera, because they didn't want communism spread either. And South Vietnam actually really started cracking down on communist sympathizers in the South, calling them Viet Cong, a.k.a. Vietnamese oh. communism. And some 100,000 people were arrested. And this was in South Vietnam. They were arrested mm. and many were tortured and executed. So naturally, people in the South who saw this started to turn on Diem and his supporters. So there was some serious internal conflict just in South Vietnam alone when all this was happening. So let's jump to 1961, okay? JFK is prezi in the United States of America, and all this madness is happening across Vietnam. So he sends the people to check things out, and they're like, whoa, Diem needs help. Let's send more aid. And then the domino theory and JFK is like, okay, we're going to send some more aid. But listen, guys, I'm not going to commit to full-on U.S. military intervention. That's just not something that I want. That's what JFK said. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> time goes on. Conflict ensues. Then just three weeks before John F. Kennedy was assassinated, DM was killed Oof. in a coup. Mm. Yeah, by some of his own generals. So then more madness ensues. VP Lyndon B. Johnson succeeds JFK as president of the United States. And he's like, this political instability in Vietnam will not stand. Let's send more troops to the South. <laughs> so more troops are sent. They help the South carry out attacks on their opposers and collecting intelligence, blah, blah, blah. And then 1964 happens. And this is when I get to the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Okay. So August 2nd, 1964. This is when the shiz really hits the fans, you guys. <laughs> a U.S. destroyer, the USS Maddox, is out in the water of the Gulf of Tonkin. And it's keeping an eye on North Vietnamese forces, collecting intel and stuff. All of this while South Vietnamese Navy was carrying out airstrikes on the North. Or rather, just carrying mm. out strikes on the North. I don't know if they were by air. But all of a sudden, the USS Maddox gets attacked by several North Vietnamese torpedo boats these torpedo boats start speeding up toward the maddox who was trying to retreat so maddox shot some warning shots and then the torpedo boats attacked and they sent shots and the u.s had some nearby aircraft so they were able to be called in to fight the north vietnamese torpedo boats meanwhile the maddox was able to escape with very little damage so that happened no question the maddox was attacked on august 2nd 1964 and then two days later, on August 4th, you guys, a nasty storm has fallen over the Gulf of Tonkin. Ooh. Rough seas all mm. around. Waves were mad high. And <laughs> U.S. intelligence 
allegedly <laughs> intercepts some messages implying that North Vietnam might be planning another attack against them. Mm-hmm. Eh. So Maddox and another U.S. destroyer, the USS Turner Joy, which I really like that name. Mm. That's a, I don't know. It makes me think of an Almond Joy. I don't even like Almond Joys, but... What was I say? I love Almond Joys. Well, James, you're, you're an odd duck. Those are, we all know that. crimes against humanity. Well, anyways, <laughs> Maddox and the USS Turner Joy try to retreat, and they go further out to sea. They're like, okay, we've got these, you know, possible ships that are heading toward us. We're going to get out of here. I don't want no attack. But as they, they're out at sea, they're like 100 miles from the North Vietnamese coastline, and then their little radar start going, beep, beep. Beep. You know, the noises they make in all the movies when there's something on the sonar. <laughs> right. Yeah, on the alien. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> on alien too. It's a good, it's yeah, a good comparison, but several unidentified vessels are popping up on the sonar at all these random places. And then they disappear and then they pop back up in completely different spots. There was no rhyme or reason to it. Mm. So the captain of the destroyer is like, let's get out of here. I don't know what's going on. And so they try to move, but these blips on the sonar keep happening no matter where they go it's like they're following them but they're not it's weird so the u.s sent some mm. aircraft to check thing out over like above the water to see what's going on so the aircraft were above the water not inside boy i'm gonna i'm gonna kick you in your shins so the captain is like oh wait there's not really anyone coming for us i don't think our radar might just be catching the tops of big waves because remember storm you guys and also, the oh. sonar operators were apparently a bit inexperienced. So the captain realized there really wasn't a threat. And he sent back a message to the U.S. powers that being, I think it was in Honolulu. But he said, quote, review of action makes many reported contacts and torpedoes fired appear doubtful. Freak weather effects on radar and overeager sonar men may have accounted for many reports. No actual visual sighting by Maddox. Suggest complete evaluation before any further action taken. End quote. Mm. But you know what actually happened, you guys? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. The U.S. powers that be just decided to call an unprovoked attack. And President Johnson came on live TV across the United States of America, and he told everybody that more hostile actions were being taken against U.S. ships in the Gulf of Tonkin, specifically calling mm. attention to the unprovoked attack that happened on the 4th, even though it likely didn't even happen. So an attack is ordered against North Vietnamese, making this the first overt military action taken against North Vietnamese by the U.S. Then a few days later, U.S. Congress overwhelmingly passed the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which gave Johnson the authority to basically hop into the war. And that is how the U.S. got involved in the Vietnam War. Oof. Yeah, totally under false pretenses. Wow. Yeah. But U.S. involvement in the war continued through 1975, despite serious disapproval by the public. And in 1975, President Gerald Ford ruled out any further involvement in Vietnam. So that was kind of when things ended. And that same year, North and South Vietnam were unified once and for all as the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. But at the end of the war, 2 million Vietnamese civilians had been killed. 1.1 million North Vietnamese and Viet Cong soldiers were killed, and then 250,000 South Vietnamese soldiers were killed, and then more than 58,000 American soldiers were killed. Yeah, and war tactics yeah, were sorry. brutal. It was one of the first wars where they really used non-conventional yeah, methods. And mm -hmm. Oh, and then all the guerrilla tactics? Yeah, it was terrible. I, I, yeah. Yeah, it's bad stuff. That's one thing. You know, we're talking about brilliant tactics, though. The Tet Offensive was amazing. 
Like in terms of asymmetrical warfare, I think it's like one of those things that anybody who follows guerrilla warfare ought to look into reverse engineering because it was flipping amazing. No, you're talking. You, what's the? Tell me what Ted Offensive is. I don't know what that is. Okay. Basically, we thought we were winning. <laughs> we thought we were like absolutely mopping the floor with them. And there's a, a, a period, it's like Vietnamese New Year called Tet. It's kind of like several weeks of celebrating fireworks and just, you know, right. partying. And so we had gotten false intelligence that like during Tet, the Viet Cong would be all too busy partying and drunk to really care about the war, which is kind of hilarious in retrospect. What would really happen, the reason why we thought we were winning, was because they were planning for this the whole time. They had dug underground mm -hmm. uh, bunkers and trenches leading into U.S. territory, by which territory I mean, you know, claimed territory in South yeah. Vietnam. Um, they had stockpiled arms in the, the same areas. They had set traps. They had rallied forces. They had made a tremendous amount of effort. It was, it was one of those things where they won before they started fighting, in other words. And then during Tet, that's when the tide turned dramatically because that's when they really uh, started attacking for realsies. Everything had been a scrimmage till then, and then we got to see like the real tactics at play, and it was, well, we all know what happened because, you know, Vietnam is considered a, a failure in United States uh, warfare. Um, and a lot of people argue that, they, that we, you know, well, well, it's really more of a stalemate. No, it wasn't. We didn't get what we wanted, and they got what they wanted. That's a loss and a victory, right. respectively. Well put, James. Thank you for teaching me that. Thank you. Oh, well, at the end of the day, the war was really disgusting, and the U.S. got involved based on falsified data. So, mm. yeah, a, formal, a former naval officer named John White actually wrote a letter in 1967 after talking to several people who were involved in the Gulf of Tonkin incident. And he said, quote, I maintain that President Johnson, Secretary McNamara, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff gave false information to Congress in their report about U.S. destroyers being attacked in the Gulf of Tonkin, Oof. end quote. Yeah. And for a long time, people were skeptical about the whole incident having, like, taken place. But Johnson and other U.S. officials just maintained that it, it happened. And so for decades, there was just kind of like this big cloud around the entire incident. And then in 2005, documents surrounding it were declassified and an NSA historian named Robert J. Hanyok, I think that's how you say his last name, he sorted through everything and apparently found that the attack on August 2nd happened. But everything that happened on August 4th, nothing malicious really happened there. Wow. And he also found possible evidence that the data was purposely picked apart and distorted. For example, some of the so-called sonar blips were entirely falsified, and then some of them were shown to Oof. have different time receipts. Uh, so oh, it was just a bad deal man. all around. Public support, obviously, of the war was dismal. And as James mentioned in our episode on JFK's assassination, Lyndon B. Johnson actually had some stuff that he could have gained from having gone to war and lots of his con mm -hmm. lots of contractors who had ties to Johnson and helped contribute to his campaigns. They also greatly profited from this war. So that's it's the, uh, it's a mess all, mess all the way around. Oh um, yeah. My supplemental thing you were mentioning, you know, how North Vietnam was communist and South Vietnam was not um, fun. Little fact uh, for everybody. Ho Chi Minh, in uh, 1945, he issued sort of a, a quasi-American declaration of independence saying 
all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Anybody with any uh, experience with American history is very, very familiar with that turn of phrase. So what he was really doing was uh, FDR was very anti-colonial at the time. And he was pretty much saying, hey, uh, how about you guys help us get rid of all these Frenchies? You know, we're we're grateful for them helping us make pho, which is uh, inspired by French hmm. cuisine, and bon me. But we don't want them controlling us anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, we it completely ignored it. And you know who didn't ignore it? Russia. So Russia was like, you know, hello, Ski, we are here to help. <laughs> and that's really what led to it. <sighs> now, a lot of people falsely claim that, you know, well, if we'd helped, uh, they wouldn't have been communist. Well, Ho Chi Minh had been communist for like 25 yeah. years before he made that little speech. Yeah. So it's not like he would have changed his stripes. But let's say we had helped in 45. You know, his bi- his biggest general, like the person, his number two man, Bogoyan Zhap, he was not a communist, at least not, uh, you know, down deep, like he may have been on the outside. If we had turned him and he had worked his way under Ho Chi Minh, boom, Vietnam flipped, problem solved, no war. But that's not what happened. We completely ignored them when they when they asked for help. And then when they flipped to communism, that's when we took an interest. And it just so happened that a lot of people in our, our infrastructure at the time, including the president LBJ, profited a lot or, uh, yeah, yeah, LBJ, blah, uh, profited a lot. So, yeah, the whole thing stinks to high heaven. It's, it's a bottom. big old mess. Oof. So, yeah, you guys, that was a nice uplifting episode for yeah. all of you lovely <laughs> listeners out there. Mm-hmm. But it's also very relevant. It's something you kind it's of- a hard one, though. Very educational. Yeah. Yeah. I learned a lot. I did, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, me too. Uh, James already knew all this stuff. Are you guys ready to draw from- Zivaz. Yeah, go get it. Okay. Yeah. Pick out the vase. I'm entertaining everybody that's listening. <laughs> <laughs> Does- I was dancing for those audio listeners. Do- Just kidding. Everybody's uh, an audio listener. Do you guys have anything that you want to say before we draw from the vase? All right. I'm on draw. All right, you guys. You want to know what we're talking about next week? I do. Next. Ooh, it's a cryptids episode. Oh? We are talking ooh. about fairies, gnomes, and elves. Oh. And this topic <laughs> nice. this topic was submitted to us by Franklin in St. Louis. So thank you, Franklin. Thanks, Franklin. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you guys. That's Alex, it. who does our music? Our music. It's by Grant Cook. You can find his music on Spotify, Amazon Music, iTunes, anywhere you listen to music. Alex, thank you for sharing who does the music. Oh, yeah. You're welcome, uh, uh, CC. <laughs> James, <laughs> if anybody wants to leave a review, where can they leave a review? They can leave a review at Apple Podcasts. Apple which... Podcasts. And we got a nice review uh, recently, James. Uh, yeah, also a special shout out to a fellow Kentuckian, Justin, for the kind review. Justin Perkins is the host of uh, Talk Junkie, and he's also the author of Coal Kingdom. So, you know, show show Justin some support, because that's awesome. And we're, we're just very appreciated, Justin, for the, the review. Yes, yeah. we appreciate all reviews. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Justin, and everybody who left reviews this week, and also... Um, if you guys want to leave a topic, by all means, send us a topic. We've got 
we've got a little a little more space left in the vase, but it's filled up pretty quickly. So send your topics to us on Instagram at Thirteenth Floor Podcast. Um, you can also send them to us on Facebook or on our website, thirteenthfloorpodcast.com. All right, you guys. I guess it's time to head out. So until next time, we hope that you can keep, keep it strange. strange.